Hey, hey, Dan. Hey, Dan. Hey, what, Ed? Did Did you hear about the guy in the bath that stopped breathing? No. He had to be intubated. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast in 2023. My name is Ed Bowder. I am Dan Schwester. And we are starting the year off right. We are about to talk to TikTok star and social media physician, Dr. Haney Malamet. He's one of our New Jersey people, so we're keeping it close to home for the beginning of the year. Uh, Danny talked to Dr. Malamet for about 30, 40, 35, 40 minutes or so about a whole bunch of stuff that's going on. Uh, what'd you talk about, Dan? What, 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 should, uh, we, what, well, what should we be excited all, for? Well, first of all, don't blame me for not fangirling all over the place <laughs> over Haney Malamet. Uh, I brushed shoulders with him at Das Mac in Berlin, and he has been a guy in the FOMED world that I've been dying to talk to for years. Uh, we talked about um, the events over the last week. Um, we talked about the uh, football game. We talked about uh, Jeremy Renner, and uh, we got some really good stuff from a a resuscitationist who really knows his game and i mean it, the the stories are super prescient and you know we uh, you and i kind of talked back and forth about whether or not we should talk about it at all um there are a lot of people after a buffalo bills player hamlin went down um at this point everyone's read or heard the story or seen all the videos and all that kind of stuff so i, I either i i, I didn't want to be uh opportunistic I guess doing this, but you know, reports are that uh, both uh, both participants are fine. Jeremy Renner well, is, uh, Damar, is talking. Damar Hamlin, uh, Demar Hamlin is doing uh, very well. Yeah, story came out today that he's talking. He's been expert. He asked how the game went, which means that his short term memory is intact, which is I incredible, stunning, uh, I just stunning, and and a, and a testament to the pre hospital care that he was given. Hundred uh, percent. One of the things we're going to talk about that. I get to talk about with dr malamet is that you know the the pre-hospital care and the the cpr that was performed on scene and the aed use that made a huge difference yeah um and we did talk about jeremy renner and how stop the bleed and things like that um you know have really made a huge impact i mean jeremy renner might not be with us if his neighbor wasn't there to place a tourniquet and do bleeding control. Yeah. Um, the cool thing is, is that we can promote this to the general public. I think we've got a real opportunity here where we can say to, you know, the world, look, this, this makes a difference. This matters. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think the listen, I, I, you always look for silver linings in bad situations, right? Um, I, you know, the first thing, and at, at this point it almost sounds like a cliche, but like, I'm, I'm happy that they're both okay, given the circumstances. Um, but I do Absolutely. think this yeah. is a win. I mean, DeMar yeah. Hamlin surviving and walking out of the hospital, which, you know, when they talk about neurologically intact and they talk, you know, when they're saying things like this, that you can be pretty confident, um, that he's going to have a good outcome. Yeah. Jeremy, Jeremy Renner you know, on Instagram, getting his hair washed. I mean, that's, those are good outcomes. hundred percent. And we should definitely be celebrating that. Yeah. It's not something that we focus enough on. And, uh, you know, you never want to see people 
experience those injuries in the public sphere. But, uh, you know, as far as EMS is concerned, uh, you know, there's been plenty of posts and, you know, little memes like that that have gone out about the first responders that were at the the stadium in Cincinnati. Um, I, I, one of my favorite, of course, is, you know, do you see this ambulance? These people who helped save his life probably are the, the lowest paid people in the stadium. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I retweeted it because it's true. But all right, we get it. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, really exciting interview with Dr. Malamet coming up. Listen, everybody, we are doing a, a whole bunch of new things in 2023. We are on TikTok. We're on all the social medias. Now we're going to start developing a Twitch and a Patreon, and we are going to be everywhere. So be sure to follow Dr. Malamet on TikTok. Uh, if you if he gets to 100,000 subscribers, he announced this today, he's going to put out uh, one of his conferences for free to all of his followers. So there's another opportunity to get a whole lot of really, really high-end free education. Um, and it's all new. It's all cutting-edge stuff. So without any further ado, here's Danny and Dr. Malamet. Hey everybody, it's Dan from the Overrun Podcast. Uh, welcome back and uh, glad you're here because we have a really special guest today, uh, Dr. Haney Malamet. Uh, if you're on TikTok or social media, or even if you're back in the old days of uh, Snack and the uh, beginnings of FOMED, uh, definitely one of the, the people that you've been listening to for a long time. Uh, he's a resuscitationist. He is a guru uh one of the people that a lot of that a lot of people listen to when it comes to recess and we're going to get his take on some things so dr malamet thank you for being here thank you for having me dan and thank you for making me sound so incredibly old i appreciate that well, <laughs> just kidding yeah right i i'm the old guy on the show so everybody teases me so you know, it's my <laughs> we'll be old together exactly um <clears throat> so uh, I'll have to put in the show notes the, about the Smack conferences because that was a while back. That was uh, some cool stuff, some really good stuff. Yeah. Um, so I want to get into the Damar Hamlin case. Uh, you know, if, for those of you that are following uh, and you know have been in the country for the last year, uh, you've noticed that this is the biggest news that's come out in the last, uh, you know, in sports uh, in the in the United States. Um, DeMar Hamlin, safety for the Buffalo Bills, was in a, uh, a situation, was in a play, uh, tackled somebody, went down, and then proceeded to collapse on the field, um, went into cardiac arrest and was resuscitated. And um, one of the things we want to, you know, we want to talk about, I don't, I don't want to dwell on the, the, the terribleness of the fact that a guy playing, a, you know, a sport ends up in, in intensive care, but uh, I want to talk about how everything went right and what we can learn from it. Um, it was kind of really a reverse Swiss cheese model, right, Doc? Oh, what do you mean? Like, uh, you know, like how everything, if you think about what happened at that scene, everything went together perfectly. Um, it, there, yeah, it was an example. It was an example where, you know, you have pre-hospital systems um, in place, ready to go, awaiting uh, something that, and has never happened before, as far as I know, in professional sports, but it happened as if it had happened every single game. It was just beautiful how perfectly coordinated everything was. Yeah, and, and I want to talk about that because those are things that we can do on our own scenes and we can practice that way. And it's really it really does have a benefit. Um, you know, let's talk about, you know, the the initial recognition of the of the the uh 
the health, the medical staff on the field to recognize there was a problem and get out there. And the thing that I noticed right away is that the compression started right away and an AED was on the field. Yeah. That's something that, you know, I think us in the medical community could start to impart on our non-medical community friends and family, just how important, um, early CPR and defibrillation is for patients because from a community standpoint, not enough people know how to do CPR. And if you are at a sporting event, uh, whether it's a baseball game for your kids or a soccer game, if someone goes down on the field, the ability to recognize that there's a problem, evaluate the situation and start early CPR can make all the difference. And we don't know what's going to happen ultimately with DeMar Hamlin, although we are incredibly optimistic that he'll do well. But as of today, um, Friday, we are seeing some signs that, you know, he might be neurologically intact. And if that is the case, albeit wonderful news, the single reason why that happened is because people were on his chest early and he got defibrillated early. That's the only reason why he'll be neurologically intact. Right. And that, and that's definitely the credit of the field staff, the people that were on the scene, uh, the physicians, training staff, and the paramedics that were on the sideline. Um, you know, getting on the chest early, continuing that, uh, getting an AED to the scene, which we should have more AEDs out in public, obviously. These, this is a lesson that we can learn from, from this situation. These events do happen and how we respond to them makes a huge difference in outcomes. Uh, if you wanna... look at the, the places that have the highest, some of the highest rates of survival are uh, casinos uh, because they have staff that are trained and ADs that are in place everywhere. Um, of course, it's a population of people who uh, maybe live uh, a little bit less of a healthy lifestyle, but <laughs> it's it's just a testament to the fact of being in the right place at the right time is is essential to survival. What we have to do as a country is create a situation where anyone that goes down is in the right place at the right time by having, as you said, more defibrillators and having more people. And it doesn't have to be pre-hospital people. It's people who know how to push on the chest effectively. And exactly. so I know we're going to get into that a little bit more, but if we could pass that message along, uh, I know this is the audience here is in medicine, so they understand it, but Go talk to your neighbor, uh, talk to the coach who's coaching your son's baseball team and say, hey, do you know how to do CPR? Would you please learn how to do it? Hey, we'll all chip in and we'll, we'll pay for your certification because that could be the difference that saves someone's life. Yeah, you know, this could actually be the impetus for an actual EMS week where we just take this as the opportunity to teach lay people how to do CPR. And, you know, maybe that's something that the squads can do, that the departments can do. Uh, is get out to the public and really, really push this message because it does make a difference. Um, one of the other, the, 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 the other thing that I noticed at, um, from watching footage of the, uh, the event um, was really that they were not worried about who was watching. They were, this was something that, you know, the, the, the people on the scene were focused on the patient. Uh, there was no scoop and run here. There was no impetus to get him into the ambulance until he was stable. He had a pulse and we were reasonably sure that we could get to him. And there was a couple things that I, that were noticed in there. 
um, that, you know, and obviously this is speculative, um, but apparently wasn't intubated on the field. He was superglottic airway. Um, they stayed on scene for about 15, 20 minutes, apparently, to make sure that he was stable and make sure that we could move him, make sure he wouldn't re-arrest. Um, that was a re that's a really that's a really important concept for people, especially in the field, because you know, you get this idea and you know, and people people listening to the show, you know, we've all had this situation where we get we get a pulse back and everything's great, and we rush him into the truck, and what happens? They rearrest. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that made a difference or do you think that was something that was significant or, uh, is it, should we still be thinking of the old scoop and runway? I think when you look at the factors that predict success at resuscitation, as far as I'm aware in the literature shows, there's only two things that result in successful survival for, for out of hospital cardiac arrest. That is pushing hard and pushing fast, uninterrupted CPR, and early defibrillation. Okay, so if we start there and say what would lead to those two practices happening uninterrupted, you have somebody who is in the field who is undergoing uh, pulselessness, there's no sense in putting them in a moving vehicle if you don't have that. Now, I'm also not suggesting that you sit there for 45 minutes doing a resuscitation in the field. There is a blurry line of where they do you do start you do have to start getting towards a hospital. At the hospital, there are obviously resources and I'll go as far as to say some hospitals have ECMO. And if you wait 60 minutes in the field doing CPR on a person, they get to the hospital, ECMO might not be an option for them because they've been out so long. But going back to your original question, you know, staying on the field in this particular case, focusing on the person, doing early chest compressions, putting in a supraglottic device of your choice, or even just doing BVM rather than stopping compressions to do endotracheal intubation. These are all factors that are keeping people pushing on the chest and allowing there to be the best chance of cerebral perfusion and coronary perfusion for that patient. Yeah, and, and as you said, the, the studies, when it is studied, seems to bear this out. We do get better um, survival. We get better quality survival. We get better, these people get a better quality life out on the other end of that. Um, that's one of the things I wanted to lead into was we're hearing a lot today. We're hearing a lot of good news. Um, and as we record this on Friday, uh, January 8th, um, we're hearing a lot of good news about uh, DeMar Hamlin and his condition that he's able to speak. Uh, he's been extubated. He's off a ventilator. He's uh, recovering. He's talking to family. He's recognizing things. He even asked if they won the game, which was which is so awesome. That's wild. Um, it is wild. So when for some of the people in our audience, when they talk about neurologically intact survival, what what are we look? What does that mean, and what are we looking for? There, there's a, a CPC score that we usually use in studies, and um, you know I won't bore the audience with the details. That's just a simple Google, but it's basically from being right back to where you were to having uh, incremental uh, deficits in what your function is day to day life, uh, all the way to the other end of like com living completely uh, assisted. And what we try to do in good cardiac arrest care is get to the person of, uh, you know, being 
obviously as intact as possible or some slight deficits because even over time and you're dealing with a young patient here uh, there's going to be more cognitive rehab that happens along the way so they leave the hospital at 30 days they may have some trouble remembering things or they might have some mild deficits those deficits might go away in time but um you know in this particular case everything we're hearing seems to be that he might be back to baseline. He might be back to, you know, obviously recovering, but um, how incredible would it be if he was perfectly neurologically intact without any deficits? It again highlights the fact of good pre-hospital care um, with early defibrillation, early CPR. And then of course we have to give credit to the hospital taking care of him. We don't know what they did at the hospital, but presumably they did all the things that you would do in a post-cardiac arrest package, meaning, uh, you know, possibly TTM for brain protection and uh, and good perfusion and all those things. Yeah, that's another thing, you know, the excellence here. It seems that everybody was on point. Um, and University of Cincinnati is one of the top teaching, uh, teaching schools. Uh, it is a fantastic resuscitation center. Um, they have uh, an excellent air care unit that, that actually flies with a flight physician. Um, it's a really top-notch center and had a has a huge range of things that they can bring to bear for their patient. Um, that's you work at one of the, you work at a major tertiary teaching center. Um, I don't think people realize just what you guys bring to the table when you're talking about bringing in these critical patients. So can you kind of expound a little bit more? Not going into your shot, your where you work, but your actual. You know, some of the things that might make decision points to move a patient or take them, if I'm 15 minutes away from you or 15 minutes, 10 minutes away from another hospital, why would that be maybe a better choice? Well, when I know a patient's coming, let's create this scenario where I know a patient's coming in and they don't have ROSC or they lost ROSC in the field and they're doing compressions and they're driving towards the hospital. The things that are important to have in place are some of the things that are available in the field to make sure we have a team that's going to be designated to doing CPR. We have a respiratory therapist that's going to come and help with the already established airway. Or if there's no airway established, getting in for me, again, a supraglottic airway is what I use for people who are arresting. Um, we can talk about the utility of endotracheal tubes and when to put them a little bit later. Um, and then making sure that we have the end title set up for a patient when they arrive, because that's going to be an important part of my management. So making sure that I have all the things that are pre-hospital already ready and waiting for the patient when they come in, as well as some of the more advanced things that we have, um, like some of the more continuous vasopressure drips. And of course, the personnel. Uh, I have tremendous respect for the pre-hospital folks that are doing all these amazing things with just a two or three person crew. You know, now it's time to come to the hospital where we can help assist and and expand the number of people that we have available to do some of these tasks. Yeah, that's, I think that's a good way to explain it. Um, you know, and I try I try to like kind of go with the idea that that the time we spend on scene has to be an investment. Um there's got to be a payoff on the other end, you know, and you want to, you want to make, you want to gain on the other end. Uh, you want to return on that investment. So, you know, getting, getting the time to get ROSC, 
stabilize the patient, get him in a good position, have a, have a patent airway, be it a superglottic, be it a tube, if that's your thing. And we can talk about that next. Um, that's going to make a big difference going into the hospital, into the emergency department, into the recess bay, and then up to the ICU. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, we could, one of the things that, you know, could be a potential pitfall and, uh, you know, not using the Hamlin case as an example, but I've heard of times where people get ROSC in the field and then rather than just loading them up, getting the superglottic and heading to the hospital, it's like, okay, let's intubate them now. You know, there are situations where pre-hospital folks can make some missteps and not do the right thing. And by no means am I judging any specific case, but it takes a really solid provider pre-hospital to find that window to say the patient is stable enough for us to start moving towards that tertiary care center and handle emergencies inside the rig versus like, let's get this person perfectly packaged up the way we want to, and then we will start the trip to the hospital. And likewise, there are some physicians who are at the hospital who will criticize pre-hospital folks. It's like, no, you just got to scoop them and run. And I think that's also completely incorrect because you're going to interrupt compressions. You're going to miss some certain things. It's harder to bag somebody if you're two-person crews trying to load somebody in. So it's it's really a sweet spot. And I don't claim to have the answers, but I do think that experienced providers who are in the field, they know that sweet spot. And it's up to people like you and others that are on this podcast to communicate that and teach the newer generation coming up as to know when is enough and when is enough resuscitation to start moving towards that that hospital. Yeah, that's a that's a great point because I think sometimes you get you get uh, task saturated and you get focused on what you're doing and you're not seeing the field. And the field is eventually we've got to bring a viable patient to somewhere that can do better for them. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, this is the intubation versus superglottics because you hear a lot about this. There's studies. Look, I could cherry pick studies that say one thing's perfect over the other, and you could cherry pick things from the other side. But it does stand to reason that if you can get a superglottic airway in without interrupting compressions, that's the way to go. It's it's not an ego thing anymore. It's got to be what what makes sense. A thousand percent. The studies that we have are. Um, a couple different permutations, you know, BVM with good seal versus endotracheal intubation, superglottic versus intubation, intubation versus uh, BVMs. Um, and there's really no difference when it comes to outcomes. And we have to acknowledge that in studies, you know, when it comes to intubation, people are doing things perfectly, the Hawthorne effect of studies so that, you know, in real life, we know that people do start CPR to, to get a good view at the cords. We know that people uh, have multiple passes and uh, can damage the airway. So to me, I would say that a superglottic airway is all you should be doing in the field. And to be honest with you, even codes in the hospital Right when there are physicians and anesthesiologists around, a superglottic airway is all I'm asking for. the The whole idea, and I'm just going to give you feedback of things that I get on social media because I do have the um, privilege to interact with some pre-hospital people who don't feel that way, who feel as though you know it's their job to do endotracheal intubation in the field because they don't have the opportunity. So this is an opportunity to practice, or they say, "What if the person?" aspirated on a hot dog, you know, 
Like even though the person was grabbing their chest saying they have chest pain and they went down, <laughs> maybe there's a chance that they had a hot dog and it's a hypoxic arrest, whereas managing the airway definitively wouldn't be helpful. And again, I think that those are people who are just looking for indications to do a procedure when you have the data and you know inherently that it might not be the right thing for patients. So if a physician telling you who loves airway, like I love nothing more than to do an airway, but I will always pass up an airway in a code in the hospital to do supraglottic airway because I know it's not the right thing to do for the patient. Then um, I think pre-hospital, we should be thinking the same things as well. So I think supraglottic beats BVM, even though I can't produce that study, because let's face it, getting a proper seal on somebody, the fact that now you need an extra person to do a good seal, because a good seal is not one person holding and one person begging. That's mm -hmm. cowboy stuff. And if that's all you have, then that's fine. But we can all acknowledge that if it was our loved ones who are arresting and say, would you rather have two people begging that person or one person? Everyone's going to take two people every single time. That's yeah. why I go for a supraglottic airway because it gets me a good seal and now one provider can handle the bag and the ventilation and oxygenation for that person. What would you say to the person on social media that tells you, I am really good at intubating. We intubate mm -hmm. fairly frequently. Um, I don't interrupt compressions when I intubate and I get first pass success. I would tell them honestly to ask themselves if they're being honest with themselves, right? Because as you said before, there's this, there's this, you get locked in. So let's say you get the tube every time. Okay. Well, let's say you get to the situation where you don't get that tube that time. Are you willing to abandon your attempt because you don't see the airway? Or are you going to start saying, but I get the tube every time. I'm so good at this. Let me do another opportunity. And every time you're in the airway in the field, you're, you're potentially distorting that airway for someone who's going to be getting it when they get to the hospital. And then ask the question as to why. Why do you want the airway, the definitive airway, over supraglottic airway? So am I saying that you should never even take a look? If you feel as though you can take a look and no one can be interrupted and you're pretty confident you can get it, then I can't show you a study that says that you're doing the wrong thing. But if you're the type of person that's going to say, like, I'm in here now and now I have to get it because... I feel like this is my job. I've committed to it and I'm I'm locked in. You're potentially going to be doing the wrong thing. And I'm very adamant about that. And um, I can tell you that just because I've seen people who who have done the wrong thing with who started out with the right intentions. No one is no one's malicious in this by doing this, but I do think there is a lot of ego, even on physician sides, when it comes to procedures. And we just have to take a step back and say, what is really the right thing for the patient? That's a really good point. I think, I think especially, you know, paramedics, especially we get very defensive about it because, you know, we always feel that somebody's taking something away from us or taking away scope. And, you know, we're very, very sensitive to that, but this, this is something that we've got to swallow our egos for. Um, as you said, like, look, you're going to take a look, take a look. If you can place it fine, but then if you can't, that's 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 it. Superglottic airway, and that's 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 the end of the, the end of the debate I mean, right there. If a physician who loves doing airway, who feels like, and I have a big ego about airway, I'll tell you, I think I'm one of the best people who's going to do an airway. But if I can tell you during a code, I'm saying put a a superglottic in. I'm not even taking a look. I hope that means something to the audience. And I will say that the pre-hospital folks are are some of the 
best airway uh, uh, technicians because, I mean, gosh, if you think about the places where you're doing airways and tubes and the positions and the contortions inside uh, a rig, um, possibly some of the best people to do it, I would say it's still time to park the ego here and just know the data doesn't support you taking look after look after look. Just get the superglottic in and get the person to the hospital. I, I, that might rub people the wrong way, and I'm and I'm sorry, but but it, again, it's coming from a person who loves doing airway, who will sacrifice their own opportunity to do the right thing. That's pretty profound. So that, that's that's a good point. Um, that's gonna that may I that's gonna change how I look at things the next time. Um, For sure. And if there's any complaints about that, you can forward all your emails to Dan <laughs> and, uh, and Ed. I'm happy. I'm happy to stay out of the conversation. We're not taking away intubation. Calm down. <laughs> and thought. by all means, if you think it's a hypoxic uh, arrest, by all means, and yeah, get the definitive airway. If you think there's an obstructed, but by no means am I saying that there's never an opportunity to do an airway pre-hospital. So let's just be clear about that. Anyway, all disclaimers aside, let's yeah, keep going. And in and in places where you have RSI, you've got plenty of opportunities. Just oh, yeah. do the right do the right thing here. <laughs> so uh this is a this is a good story this was good news uh you know it seems that demar is going to uh improve and we're certainly pulling for him um i think everybody's a bills fan this week and uh <laughs> you know i i think we're really happy to see him um getting getting better every day and we hope to see him on the field uh in some way shape or form uh the beginning of next season uh, I wanted to kind of get your ideas on Jeremy Renner, uh, since we're talking about famous people in the news who have uh, accessed the uh, resuscitation system. Uh, Jeremy had a little bit of an accident with a snowplow, and uh, it's another example of a layperson doing something right at the point of injury that that may have saved this guy's life. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, you know, uh, there's been this big stop the bleed campaign for a long time. Um, that for whatever reason just hasn't caught traction, but it's a very simple thing to know how to stop exsanguination. And I, I do think it falls into the category of things you ought to know as a human being, right? Like your parents teach you how not to steal. They teach you, you know, uh, the right things in life and you go to school and you learn things. Why some of these things like CPR, like stop the bleed aren't part of the curriculum. Well, I'll just never know. But, uh, but from what you're describing, uh, you know, he's alive because of this person. And that's incredible. Yeah. It was his neighbor apparently applied a tourniquet and, uh, stay, you know, got him, got his bleedings controlled and, uh, he's now doing fine. He just did an Instagram video, um, you know, from the ICU. I mean, nobody yeah. looks, look, nobody looks great in the ICU or the, or the trauma bay, but to, to be he able to good. do that. To be able to do good. that and talk and be functional. <laughs> well, he's a movie star. He's a movie star. He always looks good. He's an no, Avenger, it is, it, sir. <laughs> that's true. He is an Avenger, right? So if anyone's going to survive, it's going to be him. No, look, it's um, it it is truly amazing. And I, my hope with all of this that happened. And I've seen some musings on social media that lead me to believe that maybe we're going to move the needle. If a layperson dies and gets CPR, doesn't get CPR, people are like, huh, that's unfortunate the person dies. If a Buffalo Bills gets CPR, people start to say, hmm, maybe I can learn how to do CPR. Look, this guy survived. 
that's great. It moves the needle. This tragedy wasn't for anything. The Jeremy Renner thing, if, if it gets out and people figure out that like taking a quick course on Stop the Bleed, then maybe someone can change a thousand lives. And I do start to see people talking about because these are famous entities that have suffered these tragedies that, you know, as a, as a person in the hospital, I think it's great that the community now can start learning how to do this. And other countries, they're already doing this. Like other countries, uh, you know, like the Nordic countries, they already do good CPR. They learn this stuff and uh, they have a much higher rate of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survival, probably because they're learning how to do this stuff. And we're an advanced industrialized nation. Uh, we should be learning some basic life support skills um, that are not relegated to healthcare professionals. Yeah, you think maybe this is what we can do for EMS week instead of, um, you know, getting another flashlight or pair of scissors. Um, you know, we could actually use EMS week as a way to raise people's consciousness. Yeah, go to kids, go to your kids' schools, like uh, elementary school, middle school, high school. Go, you know, if you're a pre-hospital person, a nurse, a, a doctor, um, go in like career day, go in and teach people how to do CPR. Um, it, it really it, it can make all the difference. Yeah, and and even the studies indicate compression only, and I've seen the kiosks in the airport. They, they, they literally have a, a, a mannequin where it shows you how to do it do the compression only CPR, but that actually does have an impact that statistically is shown to improve outcomes. Right. Right. Just the, just the fact of someone getting there, getting on the chest and get it, like you said, in casinos and getting an AED to the scene is one of the major things. And, you know, I mean, as paramedic, you hate to say like all the magic doesn't really matter, but if you think about it, the stuff we do is very secondary to what those two things are. If people don't do that, we're not going to have good survival rates. We're not going to have good success stories. Um, you know, if we can't get that basic foundation done, you can't do your stuff in the hospital. So this is That's where right. we need to be. This is where we need to be out on social media, out on you know, talking about this, where our organizations like, you know, NAEMT, NAEMSP, this, this is where they should be taking the initiative on this. Um, so absolutely. Hopefully, and so hopefully we're going to take yeah. that as an opportunity. I hope so. I hope so. Because, you know, when I think about community and medicine, I, I think about myself as being someone in the community who educates, but even more so, I think about firefighters and paramedics um, who are going to be in the community, who are recognized entities. Um, there's already a station in the community that people know, oh, that's the firehouse and and that's, that's where the paramedics are. Um, there's so many opportunities to be creative and to bring the community inside and community build and teach them some essential skills. So I think you're right. And, and again, if we can, I always try to look for the silver lining in things. And if we can turn these two celebrities, um, terrible accidents into something positive, this might just be it. And again, with the reinforcement of Damar Hamlin leaving the hospital neurologically intact, the public can be like, and we tell the public, the reason why that happened is because of early CPR. People will be more inspired to learn that. Yeah. Um, so quick, just real quick, I know we're up on a hard out. Um, I want to go back to to Damar. A lot of, a lot of uh, there's been a lot of talk about Kamosha Cordis. Um we don't know the etiology of the arrest. Uh, we can assume because it happened after he was struck in the chest. Just explain that briefly. And if you could, and, and 
why you think this is, is this a likely diagnosis or is this a hypothesis that makes sense or are we just never going to know? We'll know. It's just the thing that, you know, again, being on social media is, is sometimes really tough because people come at you. Look, we don't have any idea because rightly so, there's no information from the hospital. We're not entitled to any information on this young man. Like we may never know because he never wants to talk about it. And you know what? That's okay. It's none of our business. But being a medical educator and helping people to understand what is most likely, you know, he had a direct blow to the chest and then he went down. The things that fit that pattern, which is all we have right now, something like commotio cordis, it's it's a it's a complex topic. It usually is someone who has an underlying channelopathy of their of their um, uh, myocardium, also paired with a direct blow to the chest, also in a in a person who uh, is younger, younger than twenty four years old, because their sternum and their chest wall muscles aren't as fully developed. Also, at a specific millisecond in time where the heart is um, going into uh, repolarization of the ventricle. So you need this perfect storm to happen. Now, was that the perfect storm for him? I don't know. No one knows. But he was hit in the chest and then he went down. And those are the things that watching the, the footage and the replays, not just what I thought, but several cardiologists who are online looking at everything says, this makes the most sense. Could it have been something completely different? Absolutely. But we'll we'll just have to see if that ever comes to light in the future. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There's a lot of people with a lot of hypotheses out there. And uh, while commotion cortis is something that you see, especially in younger populations, uh, my kid was a lacrosse goalie, so that was something I was worried about. Oh, sure. Lacrosse too. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's always a couple cases. It seems like every year, uh, hockey and you know, in the youth sports, but I think, I think your point that it's none of our business is really great. Um, it's, it's his, it's his thing. It's his struggle. We should be happy that there was early CPR. There was an AED at the scene, which every sporting event should have CPR trained and have an AED on the field. Um, I don't care what level you're playing at, whether it's peewees all the way up to, you know, the pros and, I think that some of the stuff just is opportunistic and I think we should just kind of be happy that the outcome we got was the outcome we got. And I think now what we need to start thinking is how can we replicate this art, this outcome for more people? Yeah. The takeaway from all this is it's good review to go through a commotion cortis because there are people in healthcare. Like I'll tell you the truth. I've never seen a case of commotion cortis. The last time I really studied it was like early residency. This was a good opportunity to review that. Did he have it? If he winds up not having it, it's still a good opportunity for me to review it, be fresh in my brain, and to teach it to other people who are not, as well as the other differentials that have come up with it. So I, I'm not, I'm not anti-discussing potential causes. I think it's healthy for educators to talk about that. I think it's unhealthy when people are like, oh, it can't be that because of this and that. It's like, that's not the purpose of this exercise. The purpose of this exercise is to review things. And then at the end of the day, if we can as a society walk away from all this and say, well, it was something completely, we were all wrong about what the diagnosis is. Well, well who cares? At the end of the day, we all learned that early CPR 
and defibrillation saves lives and good pre-hospital training saves lives and bystander CPR saves lives. Well, that's the biggest learning point for anyone. And it, it crosses over the medical community into the lay person. So there's a lot of good takeaways that I think when we look back at this next year and we say, oh, that happened last year, there'll be a lot of important lessons that came out of it. I think that's a great place to end it. Um, that's a great uh, way of summing everything up that we've been talking about the last uh, almost an hour. And uh, so, Doc, where can people find you? On yep, I'm on I'm Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, at TikTok, um, at Critical Care Now, same brand all across the way. I'm always, DMs are always open. So reach out to me if there's, you want to discuss some things. I'll just keep making education. I do conferences as well. And this is not a plug for it. But um, if you go into my bio of any of those things, you'll find some free resources that aren't uh, social media-ish, if you will, some longer format videos, the books that I read, articles that I do. I do lots of stuff that isn't on social media, but it's free for the public as well. So uh, just check out the bio for all that information. But look, Dan, I, I really appreciate you inviting me on here to talk to you and your community it's amazing what you folks do pre-hospital. And I'm grateful every time I get a patient in the in the resuscitation bay. And um, and I know that, that good pre-hospital care was done. So thank you. And I know it's also a very dangerous job. So thank you for also taking the risks um, of just being out there and doing the great work that you do. Well, that's great. Thanks, Doc. We really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. I hope to have you on again. My pleasure. Thank you. 